You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the December 2022 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I will begin by speaking to the authors of a paper entitled Immune Response to SARS-CoV-2 Third Vaccine in Patients with Rheumatoid Arthritis Who Had No Seroconversion After Primary Two-Dose Regimen with Inactivated or Vector-Based Vaccines. The authors will review the important findings of their paper to you. And can you please review the major findings of your study? Yes, of course. Um, during the second phase of the study, the one when we assessed the third, the third dose um, efficacy, the selected patients received a third dose of vaccines, most of them RNA vaccine, one of them a vector-based vaccine. And again, development of anti-spike IgG neutralizing activity and T-cell response was assessed between 21 and 40 days after the, the third dose. And after this vaccination, 90% of the patients presented detectable anti-SARS-CoV-2 IgG and 76% of them neutralizing activity. Compared to the treatments, abatacept and rituximab were associated with the absence of neutralizing activity and lower titers of neutralizing antibodies. And specific TIT response was detected in 71% of the patients selected after the third dose. And in that case, the use of abatacept was associated with a significantly lower frequency of titer response. And that's what those were our um, that's what we find out, and that's what we wanted to, to highlight at this point. Any additional comments? Uh, yes, I, I want to add here that this was a joint venture, as uh, Gustavo said before, between the government of the Provincia of Buenos Aires, uh, the research unit of the Argentine Society of Rheumatology, and two centers in, in Buenos Aires. And this is a unique, in some way, a unique study because most of these patients at this stage in Argentina were vaccinated with Sputnik V. So we got from the government the possibility to use the Pfizer vaccine. So uh, probably uh, there are not many places around the world that can have this combination of vaccine mm -hmm. uh, showing the results that Carolina are uh, describing. At that and point, all of the patients, all 21 patients had they're all uh, mixed regimens because they could have the same dose between the first and the second, but then when they got the, the third dose, they all got at least two different vaccines, two different types of vaccines. I, mean. I hope you enjoyed listening to authors discuss the findings of their paper and that you will listen to the complete interview I had with them about this paper and read the full-length article, which is available on our website at www.jroom.org.
The next paper to highlight is entitled Relationship Between Inflammation and Radiographic Progression in Patients with Ankylosing Spondylitis Attaining a Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Disease Activity Index, or BASDI, of less than four during tumor necrosis factor inhibitor therapy, and is by Ku and colleagues. Previous studies have shown that there is a good correlation between the ASDAS and the CRP values with radiographic damage in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. The aim of this study was to examine if there was a relationship between inflammation and radiographic damage in patients achieving a low BASDI while on anti-TNF therapy. The authors investigated 333 patients with AS who were on anti-TNF therapy and had a BASDI, which was persistently less than four and were serially followed for changes in the MSAS over time. Measures of inflammation were ESR and CRP, as well as the ASDAS, and these were also measured at Q6 monthly intervals. The authors found that the cumulative sum of CRP over a 20-month period was the best predictor of radiographic progression in this cohort of patients. They also found, as previously shown, that peripheral arthritis was negatively correlated with radiographic progression. CRP was a better predictor of radiographic progression than was the ASDAS in this study. Please read this article for more details about the analysis performed and the conclusion of the authors of this clinically important study. Medication non-adherence is common in rheumatic diseases and may negatively affect the outcome. In this article to highlight by Sun and colleagues who examined this issue in patients with SLE in their article entitled Development and Initial Validation of a Lupus-Specific Measure of Extent and of Reasons for Non-Adherence. The objective measure used was the extent of non-adherence or the dose non-adherence measure which was designed to capture both the extent of non-adherence and the reasons for non-adherence. In this study, the authors refined the reasons for non-adherence domain of the dose non-adherence measure through rheumatologist feedback and patient interviewing. They then administered this refined instrument to 16 patients who were on oral SLA medication and compared the results of this new instrument to previously validated instruments such as beliefs about medicines questionnaire, the medication adherence self-report inventory, 
the medication possession ratios, and objectively to hydroxychloroquine blood levels. They found that items that examined the extent of non-adherence produced good, reliable scores and identified 47% of their patients as non-adherence. They showed the scale had good convergent validity with the medication adherence self-reported inventory as well as hydroxychloroquine blood levels. But the validity was to a lesser extent found to be with the beliefs about medicines questionnaire and the medication possession ratios. The patients who were found to be non-adherent identified on the average 3.5 barriers to adherence. The most common barriers identified were one, being busy or forgetting at 62%, physical fatigue, 38% of the patients, and what they called pill fatigue in 33% of the patients. This article is important reading for all rheumatologists important, interested in this important issue of adherence, not only in patients with SLA, but in all rheumatic disease patients. The next article to highlight this month is entitled, Physical Activity Associates with Lower Systemic Inflammatory Gene Expression in Rheumatoid Arthritis, and is by Patterson and colleagues. The rationale for this study was based on two previous observations. One, that in otherwise healthy populations, there is an inverse association between physical activity and inflammatory biomarkers, and two, physical activity may improve RA symptoms. Therefore, the aim of this study was to determine if there was an association of physical activity with inflammatory gene expressions in patients with RA. Physical activity was measured quantitatively over seven consecutive days, and peripheral blood was collected during the same period. They then used RNA sequencing of the peripheral blood followed by differential gene expression, then pathway and network analysis in 35 patients. They found that the most physically active patients exhibited a dose-dependent downregulation of multiple immune signaling pathways that have been implicated in the pathogenesis of RA, which included CD40, STAT3, IL-17A, IL-18, and interferon signaling pathways, as well as others. In an accompanying editorial how, entitled, How Could Physical Activity Reduce Inflammation and Inflammatory Gene Expression in Rheumatoid Arthritis, Drs. Patrick Dessen and Stanwix and Ahmed Solomon reviewed the physiology behind the association 
of physical activity and RA's disease activity. They also give their perspective on the findings of Patterson et al. The Patterson paper and the accompanying editorial important readings to those interested in the association of physical activity and disease activity in patients with RA. The final article to highlight this month is entitled Long-Term Follow-Up of a Randomized Controlled Trial of Allopurinol Dose Escalation to Achieve Target Serum Urate in People with Gout and is by Coleman and colleagues. This is a follow-up study of an, the original study, which was a 12-month trial, which was initially randomized and then was followed by a 12-month open-label extension phase. The authors are now reporting on the long-term follow-up after a mean of 6.5 years. The aim of this study was to determine the long-term use and adherence with urate-lowering therapy, serum urate control, and self-reported flares in participants in their randomized controlled trial, which was a allopurinol dose escalation trial to achieve a target serum urate level of less than 0.36 millimoles per liter, which is the equivalent of 6.0 milligrams per deciliter. Of the original 183 participants who entered the trial, 67% or 119 were alive at the time of the follow-up study and available for study. 98 of the 119 patients, or 82%, were still receiving allopurinol. 5 or 4.2% were now receiving fibroxostat. 10 or 8.4% were no longer on any urate-lowering therapy. And in 5%, they could not determine whether patients were on urate therapy or not. In the allopurinol group at follow-up, the mean dose was three, 391 milligrams, which was 8. 28.1 milligrams less than the dose at their last study visit. Overall, 49% of these patients were on the same allopurinol dose, 18% a higher dose, and 33% on a lower dose. 79% of the patients reported 100% adherence to allopurinol. 90% reported greater than 90% adherence, while 5% reported less than 50% adherence. In an accompanying editorial entitled Long-Term Adherence to Urate-Lowing Therapy and Gout, a glass half-empty or glass half-full, Drs. Lindy Halgett and Ted Miklas examined the implications of the study of long-term care of patients with gout and discuss 
how this may affect the health care system and society if support is not given to patients to maintain the target serum urate level of 0.36 millimoles per liter or 6.0 milligrams per deciliter. This month, our Panorama article is entitled Rusty and Wooden and is by Brian Smith, who is currently a medical student at Stanford University. In this article, Mr. Smith recalls a woman he had contact with who had developed new onset arthritis and said to him, I wish sometimes that people could see my arthritis and see how it feels for me. I think that would help them understand a bit better. In this interesting article, Mr. Smith gives you two digital art pieces to fulfill what he believes is the visualization of osteoarthritis in honor of his patient. The image in rheumatology this month describes a 46-year-old man who presented with a two-week history of arthralgia and a two-day history of dyspnea. Physical examination showed polyarthritis and a painful papule on his hand. A biopsy of this papule was consistent with a cutaneous extravascular necrotizing granuloma with eosinophils. Subsequently, a diagnosis of eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis was made. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only the highlighted articles, but all the articles in the December 2022 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. And I also invite you to watch the inter- my interview with the authors of the highlighted article, not only of this month, but of previous months, if you had missed them. They are also available on our website and at YouTube. If you have any comments or questions of these highlighted articles or any articles in the Journal of Rheumatology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen next month to the January edition of Editor's Highlights. This is an important year as the year 2023 marks the 30th year of publication of the Journal of Rheumatology. Please stay well. Have a good holiday season, and I wish you all a happy and healthy New Year.